0: Hi there, welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies. I'm your host, Carla Nappi. I recently had the pleasure to talk with Mary White, or Corky White, as you'll hear me um, address her in the course of the interview, about her brand new book from uh, University of California Press called Coffee Life in Japan. Now, this is a book about the social history of cafes in Japan, about the ethnography of cafes as urban spaces, about the development of coffee as a commercial industry with really interesting ties to a broader global history in Brazil in particular, and about the culture of coffee itself. It's a- it's a very rich book. It's very sort of lightly and playfully and wonderfully um, written. It's a lot of fun to read. You'll learn a ton. You'll learn about where to go for a good cup of coffee in Kyoto or Tokyo right now. Um, and you'll learn about why One Cafe in particular includes or provides stuffed animals to its patrons when they come in to get a cup of coffee. Um, it's, a, it's, as I said, a really fun book. I had a great time talking with Corky about it, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. So hi, Corky. Hello. We're here today to talk with Mary White or Corky White about her book Coffee Life in Japan, and that just came out with University of California Press in 2012. Thank you so much for making time to talk with us today about the book. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Uh, It's an absolute pleasure to read, and I can already tell from um, reading it, I know it just came out, but it's going to have a very wide readership as well it should. Um, So congratulations on the book. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Um, So, Corky, could you start us off by saying a little bit about um, what brought you to Japan in the first place? You opened the book with an anecdote about coming to Japan in the 1960s for the first time. What led you there and to uh, Japan as a field of interest?
1: Um. I got involved with Japan almost by default. When I was in high school, my particular high school had a very Euro focus, and I, you know, I was very interested. I took French for a million years, as you know, we, and I think the high school sort of assumed we would all head in that direction or do political science or something. It was a very heady kind of school, but I was contrary and rebellious. And I said, no, you know, I want to get farther away from home than that. And so I ended up going to the school library and saying, you know, looking at the globe and it seemed Japan was pretty far away and they had a fair amount of books on Japan. So I set myself the goal of reading everything they had in English, of course, on Japan and, It just kept appealing to me. So when I got to college, I started, well, you know, I started some Russian because everybody was doing Russian Soviet studies. And I started Japanese. And they're both hellishly hard, at least for a freshman. And I ended up dropping Russian, which was, to me, a really good thing because I really got to thinking that Russian was harder than Japanese. And I I, kind of still think it is. Um, So by the time I was in college, I was already hooked, and yet I'd never been to Japan. It took me that four years of not going anywhere to really solidify my interest and some of my skills in language. So that's what got me in graduation week, my first foreign country. In fact, my first airplane ride was to Japan, my first passport, of course. So it's all like... I don't know, Destiny or something. (laughs) I got to Japan, and I thought, oh my God, this is so confirming. This is it. This is what I want to do. But I was still very young, and I took a couple of sideline activities after that. Um, And I had my first baby, and my in-laws advised me not to do Japanese studies because I might end up like Margaret Mead, and they didn't want that. (laughs) So... I did a, a, a master's and actually all but dissertation in literature, in Western literature, mm. and which was great because I love reading, and that stuff has stuck with me. You know, you're forced to memorize poetry. That was good, too. But essentially, Japan called me back, and after that degree— that you know, short-lived master's degree, I went back into Japanese studies. Unfortunately, with so many years away that I had to start from scratch again on language. But, you know, it's in my blood. Yeah. So the um, the
0: book not only opens with your account of going to Tokyo for the first time in the 1960s, um, but in particular, a scene that is going to stick, I think, in the minds of any of your readers, which is a, a wonderful scene um, of going to a cafe or to an underground coffee house um, in a particular, in particularly memorable circumstances. Yeah. So,
1: can you say a bit about that for our listeners? Um- it is kind of a memorable story for me. Too. I haven't, it, it was sort of an awkward moment, but it was very confirming too. And what happened was my first trip to Japan, very young, um, sort of pelting through the streets of Tokyo in a 1948 Pontiac that had been left over from the occupation of Japan. And late at night, there weren't, many cars yet in Tokyo are still sort of emerging and um, my friends took us to as you said a cell underground kind of cafe, a dark almost like a speakeasy cafe but it was a coffee house and at the door we are asked please to take off all our clothes and I'm thinking, you know this is another Japan, I'm really excited about this, this is going to be avant-garde Japan, not flower arranging and tea ceremony, I want to know this Japan. And as a rebellious youth, I thought, well, this is great. And Japan's doing it with me. So, you know, I was shy and raised in New England and you know, Puritan ethics and stuff, but I managed to get my clothes off. Anyway, they painted us all over with great huge calligraphy brushes in a kind of cobalt blue, and then pressed us against large sheets on the wall that left, of course, our imprints on that wall, various body parts and all that. And then they gave us showers. And to this day, I can't figure out why a cafe had showers, but they do sometimes. And and, um, and in fact, in Japan, it was in the cafes in the 19th century that showers first emerged in Japan. So before that, there were baths, right? Mm -hmm. So um, I was experiencing all kinds of things I didn't understand. And uh, we had coffee. And, you know, as I write, I cannot remember for the life of me what that coffee tasted like. But because everything else was so emotionally (laughs) complicated. Um, But that was one of those moments when I really thought, um, you know, Japan's ahead of the game in every way. Years later, years, decades later, I went to the Centre Pompidou in Paris and found an Yves Klein retrospective and saw a scratchy old video that showed an earlier manifestation where Yves Klein himself is painting blue the bodies of Parisian models um, who weren't as various in, in shape as we were in the Tokyo cafe, but were also pressed against the wall. And so I'm thinking, oh, my God. It all flashed before my eyes and we found the curator and found out that indeed what I had been part of was an homage to Yves Klein who had invented a color called Klein Blue in which, you know, and he had done this in Tokyo years before. So I didn't know that the avant-garde I was witnessing was actually a French avant-garde, but it certainly made Tokyo for me for decades into cutting edge.
0: Now, Corky, your background and your previous publications range um, across, range incredibly widely and across many, many topics um, and include now not just anthropological um, monographic works, but also food writing and just this wonderful array array of topics. What brought you to the idea of doing a monograph on cafes in Japan in particular? So, why this topic and why this form um, of writing about this
1: topic? It's interesting. Um, I have always sat in cafes and everywhere I could find one. And they always seemed to me like places of both social and personal respite time. And so even as an undergraduate where there were cafes all over the place because that was the beat era, you know, um, I... Look for cafes wherever I'm going, and I just kind of sit there. And I'd been doing this in Japan for, you know, like 40 years, Mm -hmm. sitting in all the fabulous, you know, and funky old cafes. Mm -hmm. And suddenly I kind of realized, well, you know, I think I should do something about this. I think I should write about this. These places, because they, they express something about Japan. They express social, historical, economic change. They express aesthetics. And above all, to me, taste and taste in every sense. Mm-hmm. So if, though I am also a food anthropologist, that is kind of my growing field now. Um, it wasn't so much the food as the place that got me in and my own particular habits of using these spaces. So I started out thinking, oh, you know, cities, city life, it's all about these public spaces or these social spaces. That's what makes people urbane. That's what makes people part of something. Mm-hmm. And I had already read, I think the first book I ever read about Japan that made me seriously want to take up Japan as a study was a book, an old book, Published in 1958 by Ronald Dor, who was a British sociologist um, and political scientist. And <clears throat> Ronald Dor's book was called City Life in Japan. From whence I got the title Coffee Life in Japan because it's kind of, my book is kind of an homage to that first book. So I learned so much about the texture of life from that book and how cities work for people and how people, it's really an on the ground book that I realized, you know, there's there's something about city life I'm interested in here. So that's how it started. And it got more and more complicated as I went on because I really got involved with the coffee industry. Mm-hmm. I really got involved with the people who run these cafes and, of course, with customers. Um, so it started going everywhere. There, There's a whole field of coffee history in Japan in academics that I thought, Wow, if they have a field like this, that's what I want to do. I want to, you know, explore what those people do and write about. So it just went in every direction, but it stayed as, you know, an urban experience as that one of the cores. And then it, it really got heavy and hot when we started importing coffee methods from Japan. So that's kind of where the story went and is to be continued in some way because all my favorite coffee shops on the East and West coast are using Japanese methods. Some of them don't even know that Mm -hmm. what they're doing is Japanese. They're using Japanese equipment though, and they're doing styles and techniques that are Japanese. Mm
0: -hmm. Well, thank you. Um, Now, One of the things that you talk about early in the book, and this is very brief, um, it's a very brief section of the preface, but it's very... I think, powerful and important and um, leads us into some of the most, I think, exciting parts of the book, at least for me as a reader, you talk about the importance of the anthropologist as an interpreter or as a guide. um, And sort of you speak to the importance of the role of the anthropologist or interpreter's own experience and own bodily experience um, in um, telling a story and the importance of that to the story. Um, How much of that influenced the way you decided to write the book um, and present the book in organize the book because so much of what's so wonderful about this book is that you do range across you know 19th century um, coffeehouse history in Japan and and weave that in in almost every chapter very intimately with what's happening on the ground for you right now um, in, in a way that I think is very effective so can you speak to that a little bit
1: sort of um, I'm very interested in how anthropologists do their work and of course it's very reflective (laughs) i get very engaged in me in this space and when i was first in anthropology it was you know the old school and you didn't talk about yourself you observed and participated but you carefully kind of set up a boundary around your reflections and what was going on on the ground that you observed and in fact we were told to keep two different journals one journal of the field notes which were really you know clean observations without emotional contamination or experiential contamination and then the other one is where you put your experience in your own reflections which kept it isolated and maybe importantly for the times Um, in a different sphere. It's kind of like an outlet for what you must be experiencing but it allows it not to touch the quote-unquote scientific objective side. And um, in the last 20 to 30 years, people have not been doing that so much and have um, I remember the first book I read that allowed for the presence of the the researcher in the document in the book itself was a wonderful book called Creating Selves by Doreen Kondo, a Japanese-American writer who's really... Um, and in those days, what she did was pretty startling, you know, and now it's kind of more common practice to talk about what it did to you, you know, to be in that space, especially in her case, to be in Japan as a Japanese-American taken for a Japanese. And that be- that began as a reflection on a moment and it developed into one of the important themes and lines of identity research in the book. So mine isn't quite as, um, you know, startling or uh, in that sense, but it is, it does have resonance. When the publishers first started billing the book as part ethnography, part memoir, I had to say to myself, wait, is this a memoir? I hadn't even thought of it that way. Oh, okay, what does it mean that it's a memoir? Um, you know, maybe it sells books. That'd be great. But is it is it something about themes, formulation, style? And, yeah, I guess it is. And we're in a different time now where you don't have to keep those things separate. I'm still partly in the old school where, you know, you know you you don't talk about it you you don't talk about the fact that you have bug bites and couldn't get a hot shower um you just talk about the stuff itself but obviously i love this stuff so much i could not keep talking about it without using examples over these four decades that i've been collecting examples um that happened to me i don't make it about me but it's you know it's about those moments that I witnessed directly so I guess in that sense it's kind of a memoir but um it's just it's still very confusing to me how how to write that kind of story without me right so so me is there and just to kind of follow this for just a
0: brief moment, I can already see um, assigning this book in graduate seminars, and I can already um, predict that at least in a seminar of, let's say, 12 students, I, I can imagine at least four or five are going to read this book and think, I want to do exactly that kind of research. <laughs> I want to write that dissertation.
1: And so- hey, yeah, I envied, I envied myself doing it. You know, I was, I was like having such a good time that I thought, Oh, is this work? Oh, oh, yeah, of course. But also because so many people wanted to talk about it. It was something that people hadn't been interviewed about. It was something that, you know, Oh, you're interested in this? Oh, you know, so right. it was totally fun.
0: But for students of your own or other students, um, graduate students who might come to you and be inspired by the book to do this kind of research, especially keeping in mind this issue of the presence of the author's self in the work, right? The self reflexivity of the work. How do you advise, or how would you advise, graduate students in particular who want to do this kind of work with respect to the
1: issue of self reflexivity? <laughs> Maybe it helps to be a bit older, (laughs) to do it with, (laughs) to do it and yet not need it to be about me. Um, Mm -hmm. I do, I'm sure that many young graduate students would really, would, would handle it very nicely indeed. You still have to have an eye on what the story is meant to tell. That it has you in it is kind of incidental, but I mean, maybe as in the case of Doreen Kondo, it becomes essential that it be about you. But each story has to have a purpose that um, mm, that isn't about self indulgence. And and I I like to think I wasn't too self indulgent, but I think every every time there was a certain frisson of you know happiness at being able to tell this story, you know.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, no, absolutely. And, and the um, the book is, uh, for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book, and it just came out, um, so there may be a number of listeners um, in that category, um, the book covers a wide range of topics. And so you, um, you'd say at the beginning that it engages four approaches. It's You talk about the social history of cafes, the ethnography of cafes as urban spaces, and we talked a little bit about that. Um, the development of coffee as a commercial industry, and that's actually a particularly surprising part of the book, um, and the culture of coffee itself. So the book opens up with, and I won't ask you too much about this, um, um, but I'll just mention it opens up with um, accounts of Japan's first cafe, um, Kahichakan, is that how, am I pronouncing it right? Uh,
1: uh, Oh, it's Kahichakan.
0: Kahichakan, right. Um, And this very evocative, sorry? Yeah. Go ahead. Okay. This very evocative story of um, the proprietor of this first cafe um, and his vision for what a cafe in Japan could be and should be. And it, um, can you say a little bit about him and his story? Because it's, I think, a wonderful way of opening up the larger story.
1: <laughs> this man um, was born in the well, just before the Meiji period, actually, but by um, by about. 1879, he was uh, a young man, and he was born as a Chinese person in Nagasaki. He was the son of the Chinese translator for the then foreign ministry, uh, the Nagasaki branch. Nagasaki is, of course, the place where a lot of new things were coming to Japan from the West and other places. Uh, because most of the country had uh, very restricted boundaries until 1868 or until the 1860s. Well, his father um, realized that, you know, he wanted to give his son a good start in Japan, but as a Chinese-born person or uh, born to a Chinese father, um, he might not have an easy time of it. So he thought the best thing to do is make him very international indeed, accentuate the international quality of this young man. So he sent him to Yale university. And at that point, um, what we have from Yale and other records is that he flunked out, but he flunked out because he was having rather too good a time going to New York all the time. He spent very little time in New Haven and he went to new york to go to coffee houses and in those days coffee houses were big f- fancy masculine clubs big stuffed armchairs um leather stuff you know um newspaper racks billiards um all kinds of amenities and you could stay all day for the price of a cup of coffee so he um he as he, he flunked he, his father gave him another chance he said all right i'm going to i will do one more thing for you. I'll set you up in business and you come back to Japan, but come up with a good idea on your way home. He goes to London on his way home. So he goes east, not west. And he goes to coffee houses there. And London coffee houses were just waning away Due to the new emphasis on tea in 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 Britain, um, but the coffee houses that remained were exactly that: these big clubhouse-like male places, full of talk, full of interesting talk. Um, and uh, Te, A.K. his name is transliterated as, uh, came back to Japan, and said, "Dad, I want to do a coffee house." His father sort of looked strangely at him but said okay I'll fund that and he built this really beautiful place in Tokyo's Ueno district which was the entertainment district then and indeed it was a replica of those London and American coffee houses um, it was as said himself said a space for the new democracy of Japan a place where people who were unlike each other could convene and have open discussions and talk about change and talk about new influences in politics and philosophy, art, everything. Um, So his vision was very like what Jürgen Habermas discussed for the coffee house in England of the late 17th century and early 18th century. So that, that image was very, um, was very moving, and people were incredibly moved by it. And people came—men, of course, men, middle-class men—but middle-class men who could have afforded more more than the one sen a day, which is a micro unit of a yen, um, for a cup of coffee—and they used everything. They used the writing desks. They used the sleeping rooms and nap rooms. They used. And I love that part. I love that there were nap rooms. Yeah, I think there should be nap rooms. And indeed showers um, th- that were uh, available. And they never bought more than a cup of coffee. And to keep up these amenities, a k went broke. And he fell into a big depression. He um, had to be rescued by a friend from suicide. And he was given a Japanese name, Nishimura Tsurukichi. And he was sent off to... Seattle and this was a moment when you know people sort of say oh is that where it all started in Seattle no um, unfortunately the trail Peters up because he was no more successful as a merchandiser in Seattle than he had been in Tokyo. And so, though he sold coffee beans, um, he descended and died young and is buried in Seattle. But there's a monument in Tokyo, Ueno area now, a big monument that's to his memory as the first coffee house creator, uh, the first coffee house of record. So, he lives on in spite of failure as some kind of memorialized success.
0: Mm-hmm. And this, um, this one of the last things that you mentioned, the um, the fact that um, sort of cafes in Japan were not, th- there's not a direct link from the Seattle cafe bo- ca- uh, coffee boom to Japan. This is one of several surprises in this story. And, and we, um, you talk about this early on. Um, first, the fact, well fourth, perhaps the fact of coffee and cafes in Japan predating the Seattle coffee boom, but also the fact that Japan is a coffee drinking society, right? The simple fact. I mean, many people coming to this book are going to think Japan tea, right? What else do you need to know? Um, But also that um, among the surprises um, is the connection between Japan and Brazil, and that's yeah. not just now, um, but that's sort of early in the history of coffee in Japan. Um, can you speak a little bit to that, um, just sort of coffee plantations in Brazil and what that has to do with Japanese history? Because that's among the more surprising parts of the story for um, for historians, perhaps, or really, maybe anyone.
1: Yeah, I think that that Japan didn't stick with tea for these new social spaces, but went to coffee, is the product of several strains of um, independent development that are independent of Japan's ties with uh, America and Europe. Um, In fact, they were tied directly to the source in Brazil of coffee. And how that happened was that in Sao Paulo, um, the beginnings of the coffee industry needed more labor and they found the tie to japan in bringing um, poor farmers from japan who would then work the crops and develop the crop in brazil so these ships would go out of kobe harbor um, in the late 19th century and they basically it was japanese farmers who developed Brazil's coffee industry. In addition, and somewhat more importantly for my story, is the fact that a lot of these people came back to Japan as returnees and then um, were very entrepreneurial and saw that they could help Brazil and Japan by establishing coffee enterprises in Japan. With free coffee for about five years from Brazil, the, the government of Brazil sent 18 tons a year to Japan free to jumpstart the Japanese taste for coffee so then what happened was one guy particularly is kind of like the first coffee czar and his name was Mizuno and his story is great he 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 establishes the world's first coffee chain and it's called Cafe Paulista after Sao Paulo and there, you know, the waiters are all dressed in Brazilian naval uniforms. These Japanese guys, and the and the flags of Brazil are everywhere. And it's a very theme parky kind of experience at first, but it really took off. And the timing was perfect because it was the beginning of the era when you know, Taisho democracy was about to bloom. That was the period in which there was a liberalization of just about everything, including women's lives. So. These cafes in that era, unlike the earlier ones, were places where women could go with relative social impunity. They could sit there and be still good women. Um, And, uh, you know, there there were certainly scandals that grew up around the cafe waitresses, but the customer women generally uh, were free of those.
0: Mm-hmm. This is, um, and, and this the discussion of um, Mizuno and Café Paulista, um, it, it comes, at least um, for me, it came in the middle of a chapter, um, chapter three, that really gives a wonderfully evocative account of um, women um, in cafe culture, both as customers and as wait- but also as waitresses, um, and sort of gets us into a discussion of or continues a discussion of a theme that's really um, important throughout the whole book, which is um, cafes as uh, different kinds of social and urban space, right? I think one of the theme- things that really comes out strongly in this book is that a cafe is many different kinds of things to different kinds of people um, in Japan. Um, it's not just global. It's not It's not particularly global or local. It's something, um, it's in many ways, on many different levels, a kind of third space. Not just the right. global and the local, but also not just the work or the family. Um, can you um, speak a little bit to this? Because this seems to be a really important contribution of the book.
1: Um people do talk about urban spaces as offering different kinds of things. And one of the things about urbanity anyway is about diversity and <clears throat> the constant bumping together of things that are very disparate um, in the flow of urban life. So the coffee house, I mean, As you know, coffee houses are plural to begin with. There are many, many different styles. They appeal to different audiences. But inside any one coffee house, there's also diversity um, and diversity of purpose come to be with people you come to be alone you come to um, have a quiet moment you come to wait for your next appointment to start because as you know in Japan you have to be on time for everything way of handling that is to use the cafe as your time modulator so you go early to the neighborhood you stay in a cafe for a while and then you can arrive on the dot safely at your next appointment there's so many uses of the cafe but the um, interesting thing to see today is uh, that people have sometimes their favorite cafe where everybody knows your name and then also a cafe where you can be anonymous. That's very, very important in the kind of over-calibrated day of a Japanese urban person is to have a space where you don't matter and nothing matters to you and that you can be neither the responsible person at work nor the responsible parent or whatever at home, you can slough off those roles and be, you know, almost a cipher. And sometimes that's a very good thing to be able to do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Absolutely. And this um, and that is another one of the major themes, at least for
0: me, that comes up in the book, the sort of um, the, the importance of solitude um, mm. and also silence. I mean, one of the, um, for someone... Um, who hasn't spent much time in Japan and for readers um, who haven't spent much time in Japan, the the existence, speaking of solitude and perhaps silence, um, of classical music cafes, as you describe. How wonderful. I mean, sort of, can you talk a little bit about the uh, classical music cafes? Um, Because this is uh, one of the things that really
1: stuck out for me. Thank you for that question, because there's nothing I like talking about more than some of my favorite cafes. And one of them Actually, there are a lot of these. They are cafes where the music system is fabulous. That is where the sound is perfect and that nothing short of perfect will do. As in a lot of things involved with the cafe, perfection is something to aim at, if not achieve. So the the music cafes, they're called make kisa. The classical music cafes are places where they started in the late 40s, right after the war, there were some much earlier in the 20s too, but when um, people couldn't yet have in their homes a phonograph player or, you know, some sound system, and they went to hear music. Maybe they couldn't afford to go to a concert, but they could afford for the cup of coffee it would take to have them sit in this wonderful environment. Well, the one I go to in Kyoto especially, I make it the end of, my day when I go up to a hot spring resort—it's like a, I have this special day I always give myself. I go to the hot spring, sit in the outdoor tub, and then come back on the little train and go to the classical music cafe. It's just perfect. And so you—you're asked in the ante room by the waitress, who, by the way, has felt on the bottom of her shoes so she won't make any noise. Are you going to be talking if you have somebody with you? And you must, I mean, the right answer is no, I'm not going to be talking. But if you give the other answer, you're ushered into a very nice room, but it just isn't going to disturb the people who are in the main concert room. So you're taken in. You have a seat. Now, some of the seats have little signs on the table in front of them saying no writing. Um Some of this, they all, of course, no talking, but that's understood. If you have bought pastry downstairs to have with your coffee, you must unwrap it in the ante room so there's no clinking, crashing noise of paper. If they they deliver the coffee on little leather mats so the coffee cup doesn't clank, they give you a leather spoon so it doesn't clink against the cup, they... Um, it's all very, very stylized, but all in service to perfect sound, or as near as you can get. The funniest part in this one is you know, you you see at any hour of the day, these older guys who retired probably and are coming for a peaceful time away from home, and they're sitting in rapture, maybe asleep, maybe awake, their eyes are closed, but they're all holding a large stuffed animal, such as you might win at the state fair. But And they're holding this thing. And I'm seeing, thinking, what's going on here? And for several times of visits, I didn't want to ask anybody. I was slightly embarrassed by this vision of tough old guys holding a teddy bear. And finally, I asked. And it turns out you, you go in, you pick up a teddy bear or a stuffed rabbit or something. And it acts as a sound buffer. It actually... Refines the sound if you hold one of these in your lap. And here I thought they were some kind of perv, and I just couldn't figure it out. They didn't have cafe waitresses, so they had a stuffed animal. It didn't make any sense, but finally did. Now you mentioned, um this is one of your favorite cafes.
0: Um, for listeners who haven't had a chance to read the book, one of the really wonderful things about the book is that there is an appendix at the end um, in which you uh, describe some of uh, the cafes that you visited and little guides to them. Um, and another one that you mentioned um, is uh, being one of your favorites in that book, the Factory Cafe, or in that section of the book, the Factory Cafe in Kyoto, um, is, another, um, is, is the, the place where we see in the book another very evocative account of of um, one of the sort of coffee masters that you describe for a whole chapter, and this is just such a wonderful chapter of the book it's it's like crying out for a documentary I hope I hope <laughs> you go back with the film crew because it's amazing uh, uh, um, can, so um, so this might be maybe a good place to ask you about um, the factory cafe you write about um, a woman uh, coffee master uh, Sachan you call her mm-hmm. can you say a little bit about her and maybe use we can use this as um, a place to talk a little bit about Coffee Masters and Kodawari uh, Yeah
1: Yes, um, as I got to know Coffee Ma- Cafe Masters and they say Masta rather than Barista or something, that's that's a very Starbucks term um, they, The idea of <coughs> working the coffee itself um, and being as much as possible making it a handwork uh, Tezukuri, an artisanal coffee. It just began to strike me. First of all, I thought, oh, they're going to an awful lot of trouble for a cup, a single cup of coffee, and and you know, I knew Americans who wanted their cup of coffee, snap, in a hurry, and these are not hurried cup of co- cups of coffee. But um, as I learn more about them and talk to them about what they think it takes to make a good cup of coffee, um, they say, you know it's many, many factors, but it's always keeping the customer in mind and that you're making it for that specific person, that idea. So um, along with many other masters who gave me their time, this wonderful young woman, Satchan, Sarasa, her name is, um, Sachan, works in a little cafe that's stuck up in an old warehouse kind of building in Kyoto, um, where, by the way, some of the really most interesting, architecturally interesting and and mood-interesting cafes are because Kyoto was not bombed during the war, and a lot of these cafes, older cafes, persisted and are continuously operating. So you can see a kind of a historical museum of cafes by going to Kyoto. That's why so many of in my book are from there. Well, Sachan has a very, very strong sense of focus. She is highly disciplined and she's also extremely nice and friendly. I want to add, but when you come in, she's yours until you have the coffee in your hand. And then even then she's yours to talk about the coffee with as you sip it. But, she will not be distracted from making that pour over by someone coming in. Usually in a Japanese cafe, someone comes in, they're greeted. Irashai, you know, welcome. Mm-hmm. But she won't even stop for that because she's so focused on your cup. She won't answer the phone. Nothing can distract her. She's making your cup of coffee, which other people have to respect, you know, and it'll be their turn so, soon enough. So she focuses. She, You discuss the bean you want um, you talk about how you like your coffee um, she uses what's called a Nell bag which is short for flannel and it's a, a cloth bag hanging from a circular wire over the cup or actually a small pot that she brews it into um, This her, the extraction process is both complicated and simple She it's all by hand she boils water, of course. She pours it into a, a kettle. She pours it into, from that, it cools down um, to a certain lower temperature. If you if you over-extract coffee with boiling water, you get too much bitterness. So she's made sure that it's down to a certain temperature. We see this now in the States, too. But And then into a very fine-spouted, <clears throat> pinched spout, um, kettle so that she can do a very fine stream over the grounds in the flannel bag and she spirals in spirals out spirals in spirals out I think maybe four spirals to a cup and I don't know so many rules to this that it almost looks fetishistic but every rule in this procedure has been described by somebody to me as producing a very understandable effect on the coffee, it's just the kind of fine tuning that it would take to taste those distinctions is something learned. You have to develop your own taste to match it. Sachan's coffee is so good that I'm spoiled, and I, <laughs> it. Um, I have, you know, I have around me here in Cambridge, Massachusetts, some wonderful people making wonderful coffee. I gave a book talk the other day where a young woman who was equally as good as Sachan um, was making coffee for the crowd at the bookstore. So um, people could have a taste of, you know, an approximation anyway of what I was talking about.
0: And one, so the nail bag is one of the um, modes of making coffee that you describe um, being used by coffee masters right now in Japan. Another one is the siphon, and this um, lets me ask you about your experience, um, with the, which the phrase failed siphon. I'm going to mention this. And this is, what I know, uh, I don't want to take up too much of your time, so, but I want to make sure that I ask you this. Uh, one <laughs> of the things that you describe is learning how to, or trying to learn how to make coffee with the siphon by a Attending a coffee house management course in Kyoto, which sounds like just an incredible experience. Can you say a little bit about that experience um, as part of the research of yeah. the book? and um, What stuck out for you?
1: Um, it, it's you know, it's one of those things anthropologists get to do. Um, you go, you try to get in as deep as possible. And in this case, what I wanted to do was understand um, what goes into being a coffee, a coffee house manager in Japan, or at least what this program thought. You needed to know if you were going to undertake this highly disciplined job. You know, it's not taken lightly being a coffee house manager. So, um, I joined this course, yes, kind of flying under false colors. Of course, they knew I wasn't going to open a cafe, but, um, someday, maybe someday. Um, and, um, I, joined the group who were all extremely serious and we all had to learn all the methods over the weeks of the course as well as other things like accounting and, you know, all the things you need to do. Um, But it came to Siphon Week and I was put in charge of my team. I guess they... I don't know why they did that. And I was so nervous about it and I so wanted to do the right thing because, I, you know, I'm a foreigner and probably... um, you know, can't be expected to know the right way of doing things, but they were very generous and I still messed up. I was going to use a different word, but um <laughs> and I couldn't get the seal between the two parts, the globes of the siphon. The seal has to be done quite carefully because you create a vacuum in the bottom of bottom globe, the glass globe. And then after you remove the heat source from underneath, the vacuum breaks and the coffee comes down through the filter again to give you the brew that you want to serve. Mm -hmm. Well, I hadn't fastened it right. The rubber gasket exploded when the the vacuum was building up. And so there was coffee and hot water and grounds Mm -hmm. and everything all over my whole team. And, Oh, no, oh, I'm feeling the grin even now. But yeah, um, siphon is difficult, but, um, it is, it's an interesting method because it came to Japan. Some older viewers or listeners could probably remember this, but, um, um, it came to Japan actually quite early in the 1700s. And it was invented in France or Germany. Everybody claims credit. Um, we used to have it in America, um, I think it was made by a company called Silex in America in the 1950s. But it sort of disappeared because it's kind of a fussy way of making coffee. But it is a very good way of making coffee. The coffee tastes very clean and pure. Um, and now it is being sold, This the siphon machinery, it's very simple actually, um, is being sold by a famous Japanese coffee technique and uh technology company called hario and you can buy hario products this isn't an ad i don't get a cent from them but i use their stuff and you can tell when a when a coffee house is using something japanese by its hario equipment and they include all the pour overs all the little containers that sometimes sit on a rack of four or some number to um have an individual pour over the, all that stuff is hario and you can you can get a siphon of your own that's much simpler to use than the one i did i might try that actually
0: <laughs> I try that um well Corky, we've taken up a lot of your time and there's um i i hate to try to bring this to a close because there's so much in the book that we didn't get a chance to talk about but i'll just say um just mention for listeners, um, there are just wonderful accounts of not only other coffee masters, um, the the history of coffee and cafes, history of tea houses in Japan, um, the sort of contemporary predilection for certain kinds of coffee and not other kinds of coffee in Japan. There's a million and one things that we didn't get to talk about um, in this extraordinarily rich book. Is there anything in particular for listeners who haven't yet had the chance to read the book that you would like
1: to mention um, that that we didn't have a chance to talk about today. Well, thank you, Carla. You've given me a lot of juicy things to talk about already. <laughs> um, I, I, think, I think one of the things we didn't quite talk about is the experience of customers themselves in the cafe and the ways in which people um, use these and are conscious of their choices of cafes. I mean, I found such richness in people's understanding of what coffee is all about. It's not just top-down. These people um, come and revel in their coffee shop. So it's this, you know, coffee is expensive in Japan. You get a cup of coffee, you know, maybe starts at about $3 US and goes on up to $18 or higher um, for a really, you know, sophisticated brew or uh, expensive place. And you know that those people realize they're getting something good for it they know what they're getting and they ask for it they're sitting in beautiful spaces they're renting a valuable piece of real estate and sitting in the chair of the coffee house so the experience of customers is something also to go for
0: Absolutely. And there's a um, speaking of that, there's a wonderful um, final chapter in the book, Knowing Your Place, um, that talks about different kinds of cafe space and the choices that customers both the same customer for different purposes and also different kinds of customers make in seeking out um, a cafe as a space, as a place and as an experience. So thank you so much for making the time to talk with us today. It's a wonderful book. It's a wonderfully um, and very ebulliently written book. Uh, it's a pleasure to read. So now that this book is out, what are you working on now and what's what's next for you? What are you currently
1: um, excited about? There's, there's always something else. Um, I've got two projects. Mm-hmm. One is uh, I'm writing a world history of food, which is way over my head. But, um, it's yeah, Oxford has commissioned it. For from me and my son, actually, we're writing it together. And then after that, I'm really excited about the next thing, which is about the nature of work in food in Japan. How work is configured. Is it art? Is it craft? All the notions of the person in the work. So I've interviewed 20 or 30 now um, people who work in all areas of food, including those who, including those who just wash dishes. I mean, there's... So much to say about what it feels like to do that work
0: mm-hmm. Thank you so much um, for your time and uh, we will I will be in touch and thanks so much It's a wonderful book Thank you so much okay so you've been listening to new books in East Asian studies Thanks for joining us and we'll see you next time